How's everybody doing? Happy New Year 2021. Man, I love it. I know it's so funny. I said something in the first service. I won't even say it, but I just, you know, how's everybody people excited? It was like two people went, yay. And I was like, it's because you've got people that are, you know, half glass full people that are like, 2021 is going to be totally different than 2020. And then the, the, the other people, the people that are realists, not pessimists, they're just realists. They're like, is it really going to be any different? You know what I mean? They're just you know, wondering what's going to happen. But man, God has done some amazing things in 2020 and he will. He's faithful. Just like Dave was saying, just like we sang today, just like Kenny told us in our pre-production and pre-service prayer, faithfulness. God is always going to be more faithful than we are. And man, 2020 was absolutely that. Like God came through in so many ways. I mean, just behind the scenes, there's still stories of what God's doing that I'm finding out on a daily basis and a weekly basis uh, in our church. But even just with our, our staff and uh, with our finance committee, with our elders, just what God's done in pulling us together, how unified we've become in a, in a time when people are disparate and, and strange in 2020. God's done the opposite uh, with, uh, with the family here at OCC and the amazing stories of death to life experiences people have had um, in coming to faith and, and uh, Jesus rescuing them have been amazing. But 2021, man, I, 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 we just see something on the horizon uh, in God's spirit and, the, and what God is going to do. Uh, and if I was going to, to give a title to today, which I'm, I'm not, just because it's kind of a, a teaser, if the series that's coming up in the coming weeks um, is a book, then this is the preface. So this, there's going to be language that's going to be used today, some terminology, uh, maybe an idea and a tone uh, from today that you will feel over the next weeks and maybe uh, next couple of months as we're uh, launching into a new series. I'm not giving you the title. It'll all come out on social media because we're creative and weird like that. Um, but today will be uh, the preface of that. And a lot of, uh, you know, just today is going to be informed by just my experience of last week. Um, even leading into the new year, I didn't realize I was going to be uh, traveling uh, on New Year's Eve, but a friend of mine called me who works at Passion City Church in Atlanta and said, hey, do you want to come to the Passion Conference? I said, well, it's all online. Why would I want to, you know, what, what do you mean come to the Passion Conference? He goes, no, you could be here in person. Uh, you know, most people are going to watch it online over you know, almost a million people, I think, watched it online um, in, from 20, 221 countries. Um, but he said, you can be here while we, you know, while it gets streamed and with, with a handful of people and you can bring your college students and your high school students. And I just thought, and he goes, but it's tomorrow. Um, this was Wednesday and we, we would have to leave in the morning on Thursday. And I, at first, you know, your flesh is like, do I, I mean, this is an awesome opportunity and kind of cool, but do, you know, do I really want to do this? The last couple of days of my vacation, spend it with eight knuckleheaded college students uh, and a six hour trip there and six hour trip back in a short window of time. But I did that and it was amazing. And uh, God reminded me in that moment. And I, th I don't know if any of the people that went are in this group. They're not. They're jealous, though, aren't you? You wish you'd have gone. They're not old enough yet. Um, but it was it was amazing. And for those of you that don't know, I spent a, a line share of my time in ministry in college ministry and high school ministry. So it reminded me of going to those college conferences year after year. Actually, Gerald was with me on many of those um, year after year and how God changed my heart in many of those gatherings. And the reason that I love speaking to college students and I love speaking to students in general. And I, these guys know it because I've said this a lot, like that when I when God changed my life, when all of a sudden my life went from, you know, I was a religious person, you know, I believed in, you know, I could have said the prayer, you know, multiple times at youth camp. And I kind of had the idea that you're supposed to be, I live in the Southeast, you know, Jesus is a bolt on thing. And it was kind of in the process of my faith, but it was kind of a subset of my life. The rest of my life was for me, work hard, play hard, earn money, get the things you want, 
you know, marry a beautiful wife, have kids, have the white picket fence, the nice cars that look like spaceships and build bigger and bigger houses, all that stuff. But all of a sudden, God changed my heart and my life. And then all of a sudden, the value meter changed. And I realized it's Jesus, only Jesus. That life is about, I was made by and for him. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if I was going to continue. I could, you can glorify God where you are. You don't have to be in ministry to do it. And honestly, I didn't think I would go into ministry. thought, no matter where I am, I'm going to do this. But I thought, I'll do that in, in the church setting. And I couldn't help myself. I wanted to. And I did it with students because I thought, you guys have, you know, at age 12, 13, 14, 15, you know, 22, 25 years old, you have more influence than you have. When you get older, you just know less people. I mean, it's just part of it, right? You get busier and busier and busier. And then in your 30s, when you're a guy and in your 40s, you're like, I have no friends, honey. I don't know how this happened. I know my shoes are funny, but I have no friends. Um, but you guys have tons and tons of friends. You have this leverage in your life. And I just love to say, I wasted all of those years. I squandered them. And I had this holy and beautiful, almost weird regret that, that you know, I, I, I was sad that I had, had spent that, but I knew that in God's sovereignty, he would put me in a position to talk to that generation and say, don't waste your life. You will have way more pleasure and fun leveraging your life for what will actually matter in the end. And you have this, you have the tentacles amongst the generation that absolutely has power to change the world at your age. And the amount of people, your peer groups, you walk into classrooms with 30, 35 people, you go into college with massive classrooms. It's amazing. And then all of a sudden that begins to shrink. Leverage your life young. Before you get married, go on mission trips. You might end up being a missionary. Spend your first two years right out of college, giving your life to a church plant. Do something crazy and extraordinary like that. I said things like that to, to students all the time because I thought I missed out on all that. And I watched it at these college conferences going, man, that would have been amazing. But God put me in that, in that position. And anyway, being at the conference, I, I was reminded of years before, 15, 18 years ago, and just where I was when I was stepping into ministry. And in 2004, I was at a small church in North St. John's County and started doing student ministry because my life had kind of, that's where I wanted to. And I met this guy named Shane Fowler. And if, if, if Shane watches the stream, I, I hope he does because I, I love this guy. He's one of my best friends in the world. But I met him right after he became a Christian, like a few months and he was already, I don't know how this happened. The guy was kind of a miracle, typical youth, youth pastor guy. They just can drag you into doing stuff. You're like, I never even wanted to work with teenagers. And next thing you know, you're on a trip to Nashville at a student conference. I mean, he just was that kind of guy. And so me and Shane got paired together going to this student conference. And I just loved the guy. He was just, he had just become a Christian. And I just thought, man, this is insane. Just walking, you know, and you would think, you know, you can't, you know, jump into ministry and, and, and be a Christian for a few months. You've got to wade into the water. You know, you've got to learn the four spiritual laws. You've got to learn the EEs of evangelism. You've got to learn Romans Road. You can't just jump right in and do it. Well, God has a different idea because this guy was a powerhouse. Didn't know anything, but God had changed his life so dramatic. And I love being around him. It's not that I don't like Christians and people that have been in church their, their whole life. I mean, I, I, I don't, but man, do you, I love a brand new raw Christian because they still got a little rawness to them, which is kind of funny. They don't even know that it's wrong when they say it. They're just like talking and doing their thing. And I'm like, yeah, I grew up in the Baptist church and that was terrible. Um, but I love that about him. I love that. And we traveled and he is one of the funniest human beings on planet earth. But his passion for Jesus just, just watching it explode gave me a lens to remember just how transformative and beautiful the gospel is. To watch it happen is like belief. You couldn't deny it. This guy grew up pagan as they come. 
Like, I mean, not like I grew up in church and had a transformation later in life and I knew all the stuff and you knew what to do and how to act all nice and tidy. Hey brother, how you doing on Sunday? I'm great. We're doing all kinds of great things. I'll be at the dinner, dinner on the grounds this week. And then you go out and do live your life and do terrible things. I know the tra- he, that wasn't him. He was just straight pagan, grew up that way. And Jesus came in, intersected his life and changed him. And from the outside looking in, when you see that happen, it's like the apostle Paul says, if, if, if you see somebody giving away their life, you know, this guy's a guy that would eventually walk into ministry. Leave, I mean, made tons of money. This dude had serious cash, super talented, um, just dynamic in every way, could have done anything with his life and ended up in student ministry, still in the same church today as the associate pastor. Like in one of they said he was a lifer in student ministry, but eventually you're like, I'm too tired and you got to quit. Um, but I'm kidding, you don't. There's lifers in student ministry, but... Um, you ask that question. The apostle Paul's like, hey, this, this following Jesus thing would be, it's, this is not a good idea if the resurrection's not true. Th- this would be a colossal waste of time if we're just doing this for the good religious moral fabric and to make a few friends. I can do that a lot of different places because it's a sacrificial, humbling, pride-swallowing siege to actually follow Jesus which will give you eternal joy forevermore, but only because the resurrection is true and he actually does give life and because he does give us an eternal purpose that will not end. But if it wasn't true, this would be a waste. Why am I here? I could have slept in. I could have watched ESPN. I could have surfed a little this morning. I mean, seriously, not that I, but this is, there's no place I'd rather be, but only because it's true and only because his spirit is real, only because engaging with a real God that is in the room right now brings you pleasure and joy that you can't possibly imagine. It's true. There's something that drew you into the room. Some of you, for whatever purpose you're here, and then others, it's different purposes, but we're all here. And there's all an experience that we're having in God. God brought us here. And the apostle Paul would say, it'd be tragic if it wasn't true. People looked at Shane and like, what are you doing? All of his friends, what are you doing? What, what changes you? What makes you leave a job? What makes you set aside that? What makes you invest your time? Not even being an interim youth pastor, making no money for two years, leading knucklehead. And students, I love you, but y'all can be difficult sometimes. <laughs> they, it just, what, why do you do that? What is it that's happening in the heart? And it begs the question, what happened to him? What would inspire somebody like that to take their life, give it to Jesus in such a way and carry the gospel to the people around him. And my question is, because I think we're in that space as a church, our mission statement, as Dave said, is to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace that comes through Jesus. Very simple. So my question is, in in 2021, as as the preface to where we're headed, how are we gonna do that? How are we going to engage the world around us? And where have we been? Like, are we, have we been doing that? Statistically, I'd have to tell you no. And I, I get that. It's not, it's, it's, carrying the gospel is not, not the easiest thing. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what does that look like for you and me? And is that what we should be doing? Well, I just want to get real simple and drop us right into Matthew 28. So if you got your Bible, Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, this is the, the Great Commission. For those of you that are good old-fashioned church people, you've heard this passage a lot, but I want to read this not in the old churchy way of, you know, this is what it is, but really think about the implications of this and what's happening in this passage, because Jesus is about to go away. 
But he's told them, hey, I'm going to send you power from on high. It's going to actually be better that me in the flesh, divinity in the flesh is here walking with you because something's coming that will change things. I, I, will, I will be with you till the end of the age is what he says at the end of this passage. So in verse 16, he says, then the, 11, or, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. You could imagine the risen Christ Every time they saw him after that, I'm sure it was like, okay, you were pretty awesome and legit before, but you were dead and now you're alive. Worship was happening all the time. Now this always confuses me that there's a semicolon here, but some doubted. Like I just, I wonder, I mean, I hope that wouldn't be me. That was around, saw him, knew that he got crucified, watched the whole cross thing happen in the grave, walking around, some doubted. You know, I don't know. I just, I don't know. That's a whole nother sermon. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's saying, same thing he says in Acts chapter one. You're going to receive something. The very essence of who I am and the power of the, the Holy Spirit. And it's going to give you power from on high. Don't go anywhere until, until you receive this. And you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. So these are like circles, like Judea right here where we are, Sumeria. We're going to get a little bit outside of our world. And then we're going to get way outside of our world. We're going to carry it everywhere. So go make disciples, teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's telling them, this is how it's going to happen. It's not because you're awesome, not because you're talented, not because you're good at a bunch of stuff. Although I love those things about you, it's because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and you are going to have a deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of you, residing in you, that will give you the power to carry this to the ends of the earth. So how is this going to happen? And, and, and why is it us? Like, why are we plan A, the church, this vehicle that God's created? Because Jesus said so. I mean, that's the simple answer. We can all go home now. That's the simple answer. But the question would be is, why do we not? I usually don't have negative points, but these are going to be two negative ones as we start off the new year. You can, you can thank me later in an email. Um, but why, why we don't, like statistically, the, the, the ability and the, the ferocity in which we carry the gospel where we are in comparison to other countries where the gospel is exploding, we're not great at it. We have a lot of churches. We have a lot of people gathering. We have a lot of stuff that's going on in our country when it comes to religious things. But in terms of the Great Commission and carrying the gospel, you and me all together, we're going to get in this together in this boat and allow God to, to transform us today. But we're, we're not great at it. And there's reasons for that. We could have lots of, but I'm going to mention two that are huge. Two that landed on me over the last couple of weeks and convicted me and brought me back to that place I was almost 20 years ago thinking about how God was transforming my life in this explosion in my heart. And when I saw Shane Fowler and saw him carrying the gospel and was kind of knit together with a guy that, had, that was a pagan and instantaneously went from death to life. And all of a sudden he's given me this lens of the beauty and the transformative power of the gospel. I want that. I want to get back to that place. And I want our church to be in that zone as well. But we have to get our heart wrapped around the tension and the problem of why we don't why we don't do it, why it's difficult for us. And the first one is we have an insecurity problem. We've talked about insecurity in here a lot. We don't feel like we're qualified. We feel like we're disqualified in carrying the gospel. 
We think that's somebody else's job. It couldn't be my job. We forget sometimes that, you know, that the pastor's, not, it's not just his job. I'm just like you. It's not Gerald's job, the church staff. It's all of us together as the collective of the church. We are plan A. God didn't have a plan B. And the crazy thing is he uses feeble and fallen and broken and fractured and jacked up people to carry this beautiful news that he sets inside of our heart. Because God is a genius. He knows that the, the blackness of sin offsets his unbelievable glory when that transformation happens. He says, you put that out into the world, people are going to take notice. You take the guy who has no shot of recovering his life from anything, he's an absolute reprobate, and you see that transforming power, that one will preach, and that one will shine light into darkness. So God knew better than us, but we sit back and we're like, I'm too sinful, I'm too broken, I'm not qualified, there's other people that are better than me, people can do this, and I'm, I'm, I'm honest, I'm with you in that. Sad to say, I'm just going to be transparent. Like getting in those places and spaces with people when, the Holy Spirit drops you in a zone where you could actually say something or at least start the conversation about the power that's living inside of you, this power to save. If you've got in your chest, Jesus, this idea, he saves and nothing else does. And we know it and we believe it in our head. But it's somewhere in our heart, we, we doubt, just like it says in Matthew 28. There's, yeah, I see you, Jesus, I've experienced you, but sometimes there's a reason. But I'm, I'm in that with you. I get in spaces all the time. I meet people and, and I, I just flame out in those, those things. I mean, I, I get in those weird, conver weird conversations as a pastor where they say a bunch of stuff and, you know, all of a sudden you have to, you're like, oh my goodness, he's going to ask me what I do for a living after he's told that horrendous story and dropped eight F-bombs. And then they, hey, what do you do? For? I'm a pastor. And then all of a sudden, it just happens to me surfing. And, and more recently, it's happened a few times. And, and people are like, you know, oh, yeah, and I'm a pastor. And like, oh, my Lord. Ooh, you know, they paddle away. And I never see him again, ever. Um, and and I, I'm with you. I, I get that. But I want to, this year, we need to get ourselves in that this is, this is spending our lives doing what will matter most in the end. And if you don't know, if you walked in here and you don't know Jesus today, I hope that the passion in this room and the, and the passion that, that God's breathing in this room by the power of his Holy Spirit will give you an indicator that we, we really believe, if we didn't believe this, the people that are following Jesus right now, um, then this would be the most ridiculous thing ever. Go do something else. I mean, go make some money, have fun, you know, experience the pleasure of the world and don't even think, I mean, if this isn't true, it would be tragic. But we built from the top of my head to the tip of my toes, I would not be up here saying what I'm saying if I didn't believe that it was real. So I would say, listen in to what, what I'm excited about, what our church is excited about and what the mission of God is because it's not this, you better clean yourself up so you can get into church and maybe you'll get a little bit better. It is this redemptive, unbelievable, relentless rescue story of a God that wants to meet you right where you are in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of all the areas where you feel like you're disqualified to even walk into church and say, you are so wrong. I came here for you and I did everything that needed to be done. You don't need to move one inch towards me. I've come to rescue you. Now at that point, now when it's living, that's when we start moving inches. When, we're, when we've gone from death to life, now all of a sudden, what does that mean? It's, I, we, we want to see we, 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 anyone and everyone invited into the unending ocean of grace, but none of us want to stay in the place that we were when we walked into the ocean of grace. You know, if we love each other, we want each other to move forward. 
We want each other to move. And that's what my hope is. So we all have this insecurity problem. Maybe you're thinking, when I get out of this trouble that I'm in, I'm not, 2020 is rough. When this is over, then I will. When this is done, then I'll carry the gospel. There's no way I can. There's no way I just, I, I can't even breathe. I'm in the valley so deep. And I'll just tell you this, and I'm not trying to make light of anybody's trouble, but I'm telling you, the volume of the gospel is never louder than when in the valley. I'm telling you, you have a leverage when you're walking through the difficult and hard times of life like never before. It is an amplifier. I don't know why it works that way, but when you, when everything's going good for you and you're like, you know, you know, you got money and everything's, you know, flow is good. I mean, you can say things and say, man, Jesus is good. Look what's happening. But you see somebody that's faithful in the valley and they are anchored to the only hope that exists on planet earth. His name is Jesus, by the way. That right there is what speaks volumes. Don't waste the valley. Don't waste that moment. You've got a voice to carry the gospel to the people around you and to the ends of the earth. And I, I, I can prove it to you, not through just Derek's stories. It's right here in scripture. So if you step out of Matthew 28 and just think about the trajectory of scripture, I could give you so many narratives and so many stories of why, of, of how the, God uses the person that's insecure and feels disqualified. They believe that they should not be the one. They shouldn't be the one carrying this massive mantle of faith. God goes, okay, that guy. I mean, it's almost, it's, it almost feels like a joke in scripture. Like, why wouldn't you pick that guy? He actually has some skill and some talent. And God goes, nope, we're gonna take this guy over here that nobody's ever met. Nobody doesn't even, nobody knows. He's off on the side of a mountain somewhere. We're gonna take him and you're gonna see extraordinary things. And there's a reason that he does it. I mean, let's just take Moses. Moses, I mean, and Moses is now, I mean, in terms of the, the Bible, I mean, Jesus is the most famous of famous, but Moses is up there. I mean, people know Moses. I mean, Charlton Heston played him. I mean, we've got Disney, you know, he's been in Disney films. I mean, he's pretty popular now, but Moses was a nobody. I mean, he had no, like he had, he had murdered somebody, he had run from Egypt and he's off on the side of Mount. He is beyond retirement age. So if you're retired in here and you're like, man, I'm just kind of winding down. There's no, I'm, I'm, you know, I've done a few things and taught a few Bible studies, but I'm 65 years old. He was 80 when it started. Burning bush, he's wandering on a hillside as shepherd and God, you know, Moses, Moses, take your sandals off. You are on holy ground. And he tells them, you are gonna be the instrument in my hands to, to save 2 million people that are enslaved in Egypt. You are gonna go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses is like, what? I mean, this is what he says right here. Exodus 3, 11. But Moses said to God, I love this because it's so real. It's so us when some, a mantle gets placed on us when we're insecure. Who am I that I should go? Like, we don't wanna own that kind of leadership, do we? We're scared to. We're worried, one, we're gonna fail. We're like, I don't wanna, it's gonna reflect on me poorly if I don't do well. We don't wanna own it. And he didn't wanna own it. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children, the children of Israel out of Egypt? And you know, God's answer is so, so simple. He says, I don't wanna go. Moses was 80. Not only that, he's gonna be the mouth, mouthpiece of, of God to Pharaoh and to the rest of Israel. And he, he had a speech impediment. My man stuttered. I mean, he really thought you are picking the wrong cat for this. Why, why me? I can't be the one to go. And you know what God says? Very simple. I will be with you. 
That was it. I'll be with you. The simple answer to your insufficiency is God. Right there in the mix. Not your faithfulness, his faithfulness. Look at Gideon. I love Gideon. Again, I could do this over and over and over again through scripture. In Judges chapter six, Gideon is up against, he's, his, the, the Israelites are up against the Midianites. In Judges, things have gone way south. The Israelites have disobeyed and all kinds of trouble has happened because they've walked away from God. Midianites are gonna slaughter them. They're outnumbered. They have no way of winning the war against the Midianites. They're encamped uh, on the other side of the, the valley in a mountain over, over away from where their camp is. They know that they're, that they're done for. Like they think it's, and an angel comes to Gideon and says, oh, mighty man of valor, which he is surprised by because he don't feel so mighty. And he's never really been that valor guy. I mean, just that, that's not him. He says, you are going to be the one to lead this charge. You are going to be the one that's going to lead this army. And if you go read the story, it's crazy. God scales the whole thing back. They already don't have enough people. And God gets it, shrivels it down to this small number. And he says to the people, I'm doing this so that you understand and know that you didn't do this on your own. I want to make it abundantly clear that you've won this battle because I am with you. And Gideon, this is Gideon's response when the, the angel comes to him and says, oh, mighty man of valor, you are going to be the guy. You're going to be the one. You're going to be, this is what he says. He said, I love it. He's very polite, which you should be. Pardon me, Lord. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Now, my man is trying to tell him, he's like, look, my family, are not, they are not the good people. They, they, they're just not good at much. Like he's just saying my people, he goes, I don't know. You've seen people that got like, you know, they got lots of good people. They're good at things. We are not good at stuff. Like we're not real. I mean, we're not even like on the, most people walk around in medium zone, like athletes They're you know, they're pretty good at football. None of us are good at football. We're terrible. Like we're not good. My family's not good. We're just not the strong people. We're the people that aren't considered. We're not, that's not us. And then he goes on and says, and I'm the least in my family. <laughs> And I'm, I'm, the, I'm the bottom. He's like, I'm, can you, um, I know you're telling me, you've come to me, but you must have made a mistake because my family is, is not good and I'm the least of them. They put me off. They go, yeah, just leave Gideon over there. He's doing something. We have no idea what he does in his free time, but he's just strange. <laughs> and God says, this is who's, who's going to do it. Gideon says, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then guess what the immediate response is after this? You can go read it in Judges 6. Oh, I'll be with you. That's it. The only response that God needed to give him. I am with you. I'm with you. David. I mean, I love David because we always think of David in this, you know, he's, he's, he's young, but he's brawny and he's a teenager and he's amazing and he's fighting Goliath, the Philistine. But the, the reality of the story of David is when he was going to be anointed king, God was picking the anti-king. Like Saul had, had kind of flamed out. Like Saul was started out pretty strong and had a heart for God. But, you know, the arc of Saul's life as the first king of Israel went down pretty quick. Like it just went, and all of a sudden it was going. And, you know, God went to Samuel, who was the judge at the time, and said, you're going to anoint another king, go to Jesse, and look at his sons. Of his sons, there you will find a king. So he goes and he talks to Jesse, says, bring your sons out. Let's check them all out. The next king coming from you guys. Jesse lines up all his sons. I do. I don't know. I always think about how did this happen? It's so awkward. It's just like the kickball lineup. Like who's going to get picked first? You know, it's like everybody's lined up doing a little strut, you know, 
got my sword right here. I don't know what's going on. It's just strange. And the the, the studly Eliab, the, the, like the, the one everybody's like, it's going to be Eliab. He's kind of tall and good looking. You know, it's always him. You know, he comes and, and walks and they're thinking, this is the guy. First Samuel 16 right there. It says, when they came, he looked onto Eliab and thought, surely the, the Lord's anointed is before him. This is what God said. And this is so encouraging. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. I love that, because in our culture, this is the way the world looks at things. I mean, we look at tall, good-looking people, and they just go places, because the world has a whole different filter. Do not look on his appearance, or on his height, or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Different filter. Man looks on the out, outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And David you think you're disqualified. David didn't even make the lineup to get picked. Like everybody else is out there. The Eliab, the stud, and they're kind of not so great brother. He's in the lineup. They didn't even, David wasn't even called up. And Sam was like, hey, it's not, I just want to let, he tells Jesse, he's like, it's, this, it's none of these guys. It's, uh, did you, did you shortchange us a, a, you know, a brother? Is he here? He's like, well, there's one more, but it's the, he's, he's the, he plays his harp. He's like scribbling his journal, doing stuff like that. I don't know what he's doing back there. He's looking at the stars. You know, I don't know what he's doing. Do you really want David? And David becomes the greatest king of Israel. So we, we think and we, we go through this process. And, and, and why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. And that kind of leads us to this, the second issue. We have this insecurity problem. But God, that is not a problem for God. He is with you. But we have this other problem that exists. And this is where David figured it out. And I think part of his story is, is it was about his heart. This was a man after God's own heart, it says in Scripture. Like this was somebody that knew how to engage with the heart of God. You've got this guy and God looked right at him. And said, this is the guy. And there's, there's something in David that gives us a clue into our second problem. So the first problem is the insecurity problem, but God has no problem with the insecurity problem. We see that in scripture. The second problem is a value problem. I mean, if you look at Matthew 28, where we were, people were worshiping Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, but some doubted. Why? Why would somebody doubt? Well, there's a, always in the mix, there's a value problem. My life my way, I am the center, and the things that I need in my life tend to take precedent. Even when we know the truth in our mind, even though we, we believe in Jesus and we've made a statement, we've maybe made a public proclamation of faith, our mind knows we believe Jesus saves and nothing else does. He is the ultimate treasure. But is that the way our time looks? Is that the way our life looks? Is that the way our bank? They always say, you can follow what somebody values just by simply looking at their bank statement. I mean, you can look. What do they care about? Where do they spend their time and their money? Does that equal, this is the most valuable thing that I've, I, I could possibly think, think of or be attached to. And this is the most valuable mission I could think or be attached to. That Do our lives represent that? So yes, insecurity is a problem, not a problem for God, but we also have a value problem, don't we? Because if we truly value it, we carry it, don't we? If we truly value it, we carry it. Even the small things. If we value something, we experience something that's off the chart amazing, we love to introduce people to it. 
We love to bring people into that. I mean, I always love a new song comes out and I feel like I was the, like, it doesn't happen anymore with Spotify. It's different. But like, if you, if you were cool enough to be in the, like the alternative scene, find like this, this song before everybody else got, you're like, dude, I got this. I'll send it to you. I'll get the cassette to you when, when you come over next and you show somebody a new song. You're just like, you couldn't wait. Go to a restaurant and then it's awesome. And the new, the new place that nobody knows about, it's the hole in the wall place. You get this fish, it's like no other. And you tell them about it and then you bring them there. You love even watching them eat it. And you're like, yeah, I know, yeah, I, I, I steered you right. And when we value it, we carry it. But we do have a value problem. I feel like I have that and we need to. How do we adjust the value? How do we change and adjust the value in our own heart? Does it just automatically happen? I become a Christian. I go from death to life in Jesus. I wake up and I believe I have faith that he is real. Do we just wander around from that point forward and just automatically? We don't do anything. There's nothing for us to do. We just kind of wander around and we value Jesus automatically all the time. No. It's not that simple. There's a reason that you're here. There's a reason that we, we engage. There's a reason that Paul wrote the epistles and said, we have to wage war with our flesh. There's this other, there's something competing for the, 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 the beautiful treasure that is Christ. The unbelievable joy that you can have in a relationship with them. There's something competing all the time. There's an enemy that wants to kill and destroy you that wants you to put something else at the pinnacle in the value marker. And he cloaks it. He, he gives it names like family. And that, that bothers people when you say, say stuff like that. Like my family's the most important thing. My kids are the most important thing. I'll tell you what, you wanna have disaster kids, make your life and your world, put them at the center of the universe and they will become a disaster. You put God at the center of your universe and you watch God change the hearts of your kids. If you, if you let your life and your, and your world revolve around your children, it got quiet in here, didn't it? You will ruin them. You will ruin them. That is not a pressure that they've ever been built to carry. You follow Christ and they should follow you as you follow Christ, first and foremost. So you get in this zone, we have this value problem. I loved watching Jackie Hill Perry at, this, at the conference that I went to. She's a spoken word, R&B artist, amazing transformation. And she was very raw and honest. She had this scent, like this, this whole display of, you know, giving her account of her life. She said, I dealt with sexual sin, sexual addiction, perversion, lesbianism, watched, you know, all the, had all this stuff on me and had no intention of giving my life to anything having to do with faith. That would seem to be opposed to everything that I was. And then God came in and transformed her heart. And they asked her about it. I said, well, what happened? How does that take place? It's such a big thing in our culture, in our time to, 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 to go be in one world and then all of a sudden the other and said it was less about this idea of, I've got to stop sinning. I've got to quit fighting sin. And this is what she said. And I just scribbled as fast as I could while I was writing. She says, my eyes were awakened to his worth. My eyes were awakened to his worth. It became less about fighting sin and more about seeing God's worth. It was about seeing that he is king and I am not. I saw myself as king. She said, I did what I want. I, I reached for what I wanted, lived my life the way I wanted. She said, I saw myself as the center. Now he's the treasure. It was this replacement where she realized and woke up not to 
man, I got to stop doing what I'm doing. I've got this big problem and I got to stop doing what I'm doing. It was all of a sudden, no, this is the most valuable thing. And it shrank everything else. She thought her identity was one place and now her identity is in Christ. She's like, how I sold myself short, putting my identity in my sexuality when my identity is in something so much greater. I mean, it was very powerful, but it was all about value. We don't feel like we're qualified and we certainly have an issue with value. So how do, what do we do? How do we, where do we get? And I, I just kind of got in this place of thinking about what it looks like, the spiritual discipline of, of making sure that that value never drops in our life, that Jesus is at the pinnacle because everything else is idolatry. You put anything else at the pinnacle, that's idolatry. That is sin. And it could be family. It could be anything you put at the top rung. It takes you out and it, in your own mind, reduces the value of Christ. So people have their own spectrum of how they see church, how they see what it looks like, spiritual disciplines, where you should. And you can go to a lot of different churches that say a lot of different things. But what you see in scripture is, is, a, is a beautiful picture of how God works in all of them. Like you've got people that say, you know, to, to follow Jesus, you know, you need to, it should be, this affection and, and, and worship. There needs to be more worship. There needs to be this. This is the way that church should be. Why isn't there more worship? This is, it's just, we, we need emotional engagement. That's, that's what we need. We, 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 everything's pretty dry in church all the time. We, we need some more emotional engagement. And then you've got people in the other camp that say, why are there lights? Why is the music so loud? Why do they turn it down? They're trying to emotionally engage the heart. We should just open the word of God. We should have more seminary classes. This is how we should operate. This is the thing that we should be doing. More Bible studies, more biblical training, more theological direction in the church. And neither of them are wrong, but both of them are extreme because both of them are needed. Our affection and our attention both. Our emotional engagement and our intellectual engagement are so important in increasing in our own mind, but also our heart, the value of Jesus, understanding the gospel more, understanding who God is more. Reading and knowing and singing about God's faithfulness is something that does give me something to wage war when I'm operating out of my flesh outside of these doors and in life. We need both of those things. And some people have a problem with the emotional side. I remember trying to engage in leading worship in the early days with um, FCA, kids at F an FCA meeting. 100 athletes in an FCA meeting in a gymnasium, very well lit with loud fans. And I remember it was tragic. Maybe I just couldn't sing. But it was, I was, remember leading worship and singing this song, I'm Madly in Love With You. And I mean, I, you got a bunch of guys in there that wrestle and play football and they're just standing there like this, you know, thinking... He's a dude with a beard, you know? I mean, they're just thinking, I, you know, I'm not gonna engage emotionally. Like the idea of God and religion, they're like, is Tim Tebow speaking tonight? I mean, they just didn't, you know, there's no, I mean, it was engaging this idea of saying you're in love. Like I've fallen in love with Jesus. My heart's been raptured by Jesus is a foreign thing for a lot of people in church. And there's a, there's a reason for him. God built you with emotional engagement. It's one of the things that proves to us that God exists. Because an evolutionist would say that, that we're, it's just survival of the fittest. Your brain and all the amazing mechanics of how you were made are all so that you survive and that you could propagate your species and move on. But there's some questions in that because you've got an amazing eye with rods in the eye. You've got this amazing brain. I heard this this week and I just thought, that's amazing. You see a beautiful picture with your eye and with this, the, the most amazing thing that's ever been created, the human brain. 
and it engages all of a sudden a, a, a picture that's beautiful. How do, we all know when we see it. I mean, I could have shown you a picture of beauty. How, why? Why beauty? Where did it come from? Why did we de deem it beautiful? Survival of the fittest, why do we need to know what beauty looks like to survive? I just need to eat. I need a roof over my head. I need to be in community because we know that that's part of our survival instinct. Why? Why beauty? Why is there beauty? Why is there that engagement? Why does my heart explode when I stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon? Why do I move into certain spaces, into certain places and see something? And we all collectively stand and look and go, why? Why is there that emotional engagement? I mean, that one tells you that God exists. Why music? I always thought that, like survival instinct, evolution, and the whole process, and like, why music? I mean, there's, I could not hear a word and hear a certain type of music, a certain orchestra, you know, certain movie music. I, I'm into movie music. And immediately without hearing a word, somebody telling me something, I could cry. I can. Why? What is that? And why do I need that to survive? Because there's, there's an emotional side to the way that God wants us to see him and engage with him. It is not just facts on a page. I know who God is because the word tells me who he is. No, there is an experiential side to that. Yes, you can, you can get wrapped up in only emotionalism and never be rooted in the word of God. My, my, my attention drives my affection. My my studying the word should drive me into that place of an emotional response to when I wake up and go, I didn't know that he was this good. I mean, the more and more you understand and know the gospel, you realize that, that Jesus was never about religion. He was about grace and rescue and redemption. Not this religious process that a lot of people think it is. And the more you study, the more you find out all of a sudden the depth of the gospel and understanding the, even the, the beauty of the Protestant Reformation when you study church history, all of a sudden it explodes to life. There should be an emotional response to that. I mean, that's, that's the beauty. That's what David had. David knew, he, he, he said, your laws are sweeter than honey. I mean, I don't know anybody that thinks the law is sweeter than honey. I mean, have you read the Levitical law? I mean, that's an odd statement. So he loved the word, but da David also was emotionally engaged. He was, he was the Worship leader. Most people would say correctly, he was, no, he was a worshiper. He didn't care about leading worship. I'm pretty good at harp. Y'all watch me play. No, he was, he, when he was alone on his back with the sheep, he looked up at the sky, saw the amazingness of what God had created. And he said, you know, who am I? You, you created the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that I see, everything that's, you've set all these things in place, yet you're mindful of me. You know who I am. I am off my shoes. I don't even, I can't even express it in what I write. And he wrote some pretty beautiful things. He said it this way in Psalm 63. He says, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He's in love with his God because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. Value meter is pretty high in this guy. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods. I love his comparison here. With singing, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I will remember you. I will think of you through the watches of night because you are my help. 
I will sing in the shadow of your wings. I will cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. I love this because it, anytime anybody would, would challenge, like I think sometimes you come into church and somebody's presenting the gospel with emotion and presenting the, the gospel with this affectionate engagement where somebody might say, That's, you're just trying to emotionally draw people into something for your own purposes. You're trying to emotionally, you're making it more than it is. Stop making it more than it is. You know, why is Gerald coming up right now? Not, not why is Gerald coming up, but why, like, why is he going to, he's going to play at the end of the talk. Why is there, there, you know, why, why, why would we do that? You're making Jesus more like what I, here's the beauty in that. I, I, I won't even have close to a shot at reaching the level of representing the beauty of Christ in any of my illustrations. I will fall tragically short. I will never make him too much. I will never make him too wonderful because he's always going to be more wonderful. We won't, and one day we will see. It says on this side of heaven, we see through a glass darkly, but someday we will see face to face. I always get frustrated when, and I used to be cynical and weird about this too, but people would say, why, is, you know, why, why spend any money on the music side of church or the, this side of engagement of church or the things that you do or any lights? You know, you should, there are more people, you know, kids are dying in Africa, the gospel has to go forward and all, and all those things are true. And you have to balance that and steward things correctly. But should we do church crappy? Is that a representation of the beauty of who God is? Should, should we just, you know, make it bad? I always say, if you're going to have lights in your church, don't, don't, just don't have any lights. Don't, just don't do bad lights. That's the war. It's the worst. It's like, you're, it's like, we want to, I mean, and I could, I could go on about this. I'd get passionate about this because in scripture, we want to bring our, even David says, he says, play skillfully unto the Lord. Don't be a trash musician. Gerald practices. He's a psalmist, Right? There's a reason we want to engage that God built us a certain way. And some of you are built different ways. Some of you need to may have a breakthrough. You have a hard time engaging with being saturated in, in the presence of God and God's spirit and surrendering to that with all of who you are. And I get that. I, most of my time before being in ministry, I was an engineer and thought very critically about everything. But there's a moment in which you have to surrender emotionally to who God is, giving your heart, giving your everything. Does that mean it's all about, we should have 18 songs of worship and no talk? Absolutely not. I feel like the Word of God is the very thing that drives you into affection. Your, your attention to the, the detail in the Word of God and knowing theology, taking seminary courses should lead you to affection. Attention leads you to affection. And then that leads us to action. Without the attention and affection, we'll never go. Without the value going up, we will never go. Staying in the place, believing that God's not big enough to overcome your insecurity, we will never go. But God, He wants to encounter you and He wants to absolutely revolutionize what's going on in your heart. He wants you to give you a, a confidence that is not born of you, but is born of Christ in you the hope of glory. Let's stand. And I just want to say a couple of things. You know, you may be here and you don't know, you've not been to church in a while or you're just on the journey. 
And I just want to say, like the Apostle Paul was very clear about this idea that he is valuable, he is worthy, and he is worth it. He said in Philippians 3 8, he says, I, 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 could, I could have a lot of stuff. I could be, I had an amazing resume, I, I had a, a pretty good life, I was a man of status. It's a man of status, I had a lot. He says, I'm, I'm willing to lose all these things. I have lost all things. And I count all these things rubbish, garbage, or dung in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have lost all things. And I'm telling you, if you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you, everything that you're going through, everything that you think is valuable, in knowing Him, it is possible that those things fall to the floor and your eyes are open and you wake up to His greatness and His goodness. And the power of the Spirit is in this room, like Dave said, where two or more are gathered. And He may be doing something in your heart right now and you don't even understand it. And I can tell you what it is. It's God pursuing you saying, follow me, surrender to me. And I, I wouldn't walk out those doors until you do. Walk out those doors until you do. God, we just thank you for who you are, what you've done. We thank you for your word. We thank you for engaging our whole, everything that you've created us to be and engaging every bit of who we are. You don't leave anything to the side. You, nothing is useless. You draw us in with, with everything. And we thank you for that. Just come Holy Spirit.